Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's university lecture is number 46 and is the final lesson covering the Old Testament. It was given in 1973 and is unscripted and unedited so you can feel as though you are actually there. The lesson today covers a review of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel, supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online. And of course, if you prefer to listen, all of Dr. Skousen's Old Testament books can now be found at audible.com. Today, we review chapters 26 and 27. Now sit back and join us for this final day in the Old Testament classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! It's always refreshing when a conference comes along because some exciting things happen that involve uh, new changes in the church, new attitudes, new policies, and new direction. And you can see the, the presiding authorities are laboring under a tremendous burden now uh, to keep up with um, a worldwide church that is now bringing into the kingdom uh, thousands of uh, uh, children of Lehi and many of them desperately poverty-stricken and just thrilled with the gospel and capable of rising to great heights. And we've got the challenge now of helping them. The Spirit of the Lord is really running strong among the Lamanite peoples that have been so uh, suppressed all this time. And my neighbor just got back from Mexico where the three missions are converting 500 a month. 500 a month. He said the spirit was so strong in the sacrament meetings which he attended that while he couldn't understand a single word of it, he just radiated all the time he was there. And so he came up to the branch president afterwards, who was um, about middle class, and most of the congregation were really poor people, and they were meeting in a hall with dirt floor and everything. And this man <clears throat> had such a sweet spirit with him, my neighbor just said to him, I couldn't understand a word. He's saying, you're talking English, which this man cannot understand. And he, he just took him by the hand and he said, I could not understand a word of this meeting, but I felt your spirit and, and mine were together. And this branch president, tears just ran down his face and he just embraced Brother Grant and spoke to him in Spanish, said something. But, but that's how strong the spirit is. Brother Grant said, I sat there, if I'd had a member of the general authority speaking, I couldn't have been any more thrilled than I could just sitting there enjoying the Spirit without being able to understand a single word being said. The tide is running very fast in the church, so don't any of you get all swung off the merry-go-round now. It's moving so fast. Uh, the centrifugal force is so great that if you're not careful, it's very easy to get inactive and not participate, miss priesthood, relief society, and the first thing you know, you're just kind of out of the circle. And the church will move right on. Uh, we just did a historic thing Saturday night, changed the whole complexion of um, the entire uh, recreational, um, educational aspect of the church. Uh, how many of you got to attend priesthood? That's fine. That's good. Most of you. Brother, Brother Lee clarified something left over from the October conference that uh, needed clarifying because he's been very disturbed by some people who are over-disturbed. Uh, if, you, if you start doing your homework, you go into a state of shock when you find out what's happening to the country and to the world. That has always been the case. Any time as, as uh, 
Disraeli said, if you really find out what is happening in the world, you will be astonished. And most people don't know what's happening, so they go ahead and enjoy life and let, uh, let the world wars come and go and so forth, not realizing they might have been able to stop it, etc., had they known about it in advance. But anyway, some of our people get so exercised, they do foolish things. And they do uh, extreme things. They, uh, they start naming dates when the world is coming to an end, and, and uh, terrible depressions will come as of a certain date. Nobody knows that. And, and people get uh, a little overworked by it. So the prophet warned about some of those things. Then some people got the idea that uh, you shouldn't be involved at all in any of these secular problems. And one stake president lifted all the temple recommends of those that uh, had cases in court on taxes, etc. Brother Kimball had to go down and get the stake president straightened out, and he called all those brethren in and apologized to them and gave them back their temple recommends, said he misunderstood well. So Brother Benson gave his talk in which he once again emphasized the importance of us knowing what's going on. And after he was finished, President Lee, as you saw, thanked him for that powerful and inspiring address. And then Saturday night he referred to those things and said, this priesthood must not allow these evils to go unchallenged. Now that's really President Lee's point of view. We should know about these things. But he didn't want somebody, as he mentioned, uh, writing books on prophecy. We have two or three little pamphlets going around the church now. They got everything all dated, you see, when it's all going to happen. And he referred back to Brother Darter's uh, Bible in Stone, which was great stuff in 28 and 29 and 30. And I heard Brother Darter talk and tell you he was pretty exciting. I studied the pyramid from one end to the other. When I went over the first time to see the Pyramid of Giza, I knew all the tunnels, all the channels, and everything about it. But he was excommunicated from the church. He had the world, he insisted the world was going to uh, uh, start, it would end by, it would start going down in 1928 by 1938, I think it was supposed to all be over. And then he'd up the date a little bit, you see. And, and some people, they wouldn't even go to priesthooding. They were so absorbed in the Pyramid of Giza and its prophecies, etc. So he was warning us about getting involved in those things. When I wrote Prophecy in Modern Times, we had deliberately avoided identifying with particular people at particular times. I tried to follow the format Brother Pratt did in his book, Voice of Warning. Afterwards, somebody tried to get me to say that Gog obviously was Hitler. Why didn't you say Hitler? Everybody can see who it is, making war on the Jews. I said, well, the Lord didn't say that who it is. Good thing I didn't say it was Hitler, isn't it? <laughs> right. So you leave prophecy where the Lord left it. But we need to study prophecy more. Our problem is that sometimes we... Uh, those who study prophecy get a little overzealous and try to say, try to tell the Lord what he's going to do. Well, don't do that. Leave it where the Lord put it. But he, he commands us to study prophecy. And he says in the 88th section, we're supposed to watch the unfolding of history and explain to our children what is happening and how God anticipated it so it will build up their faith. That's a command to the elders of Israel. I think a deeper understanding of the attitude of President Lee now is coming from all of this. And much good will, will result from it, because our people cannot turn their backs on these things. In fact, just last summer, uh, President Lee had every, every priesthood, every stake priesthood in the whole church studying how they could be a greater influence in their community, know what's going on, and so forth. So our problem is to um, stand formed and do what we can, but don't uh, try to lead out in front of the church. Just take it as we 
do what be what influence we can. Now, there are two or three things I want to m- mention so that you'll be sure to uh, have them in mind. I want to go back a little bit to the slides that we saw because I was going so fast and it was dark and you may not have taken notes. And I just want to make sure that um, you picked up all the details that were there. Uh, first of all, in um, 721, how many tribes went off into uh, limbo? Twelve? Nine? Ten? Do I hear eleven? Are you sure ten? All right. Then when they return in the latter days, how many are coming back? Isn't Ephraim already here? And Manasseh already here? Just part of it. That's right. Ten are coming back. From which direction? Not south? All right. When we were talking about the um, problems that Israel has had, I told you about the War of 1948. They declared themselves an independent nation, even though they were only one-third of the population. Two-thirds of the population were Arab. And they said, well, the United Nations recommend we become a nation. We live together peacefully. We can do it. And the Arabs said, no, we can't. So the Jews went right, right ahead and declared their country an independent nation as of May the 15th. What happened to the million or more Arabs in Israel? They departed. They left. Where did they go? Other Arab countries. Who asked them to come out? Where did they end up? In those camps, in those limited camps where they stayed for a long time. Now, um, down through the years, when the Christians have been persecuting the Jews, and that's been the principal persecutor of the Jews, by the way, have been the Christians. They've just slaughtered Jews, persecuted them, put them in ghettos. The average Jewish person, you just use the word Jesus Christ, you see, and that's, that's, like, that's almost like saying Hitler to him. Is that they have had more of their people in jail and imprisoned in the name of Jesus Christ because they're supposed to have killed him, their ancestors, you see. So this, this name is just uh, like, a, like a crown of thorns for them. And you need to know that when you're doing missionary work among them. You don't even mention, uh, you just talk about the Messiah up till about the fifth lesson. And then gradually they're beginning to get the, view, the understanding of it. But they don't even, you don't even communicate. Uh, you have a real credibility gap there if you use it too early. Uh, now, who were their best protectors all during the years? Who was the nicest to them? Who befriended them? What nation? When they were driven out of, with the Moors, you see, driven out of Spain by Isabel and Ferdinand, who defended them? Who took them with them? Who gave them homes? Arabs. Don't forget that. Arabs have been the best friends the Jews have had. So when the Jews got the Balfour Declaration, they went to bat for the Arabs to get Britain to promise to give them a good place to live. And if it hadn't been for Hajimin, uh, the fanatical Arab religious leader, those people could have lived together very nicely. But he went in there and spread the word they were going to bomb the Dome of the Rock. And boy, the riots broke out. They burned down the Jewish synagogues. And it was awful. Well, they're committed not to. No, I, I think their whole attitude is... Um, if God wants a temple there, he'll have to take care of the Dome of the Rock. So I know that's the way they think. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Anyway, they're committed not to, not to disturb anybody's sacred places. And Hajimin's uh, rumor, of course, spread like wildfire. How many wars now have been involved altogether in which the Israelites have had to save themselves? They haven't had help from anybody. There are three wars in which they were abandoned, just like Isaiah said they would be. They'd do it all alone. What were the wars? What was the first one? 1948. Next one? 
1956, when's the next one? 1967. Three great wars. Now, these are the big wars, the, the big official wars. Now, do you remember what we said in the book about the protocols of the elders of Israel? This is supposed to be a conspiratorial doctrine, a uh, document, in which the leaders of the Jews got together and decided to take over the world, uh, sabotage the Gentiles, exploit them in, in their factories and everything. Who wrote the protocols of the elders of Israel? The uh, Russians, uh, one of the Tsar's agents. And that was to justify um, fiddler on the roof uh, operation, you see. That was to justify ex expropriation of Jewish property and drive them out of the country, and especially the rich Jews that were illegally inside Russia and had been tolerated because they had so much money and influence. So it was used. Then Hitler used it, of course, uh, uh, with devastating results. We're not sure just how many, four, five, six million people killed. Just want to be sure you remember that. Now, I just want to say a word or two about Jeremiah. Now, when the Babylonians moved in, who, under whose direction did the Babylonians come? Who was their leader? Nebuchadnezzar. Think you remember that? Nebuchadnezzar? Okay. When they smashed the... Uh, they, they, they came in and it looked like uh, the city was going to fall, so the king fled by a back gate, went down Brook Kidron in the valley, headed that down for Jericho. Was he captured? What was his name? What was his name? Zedekiah. You sure of that now? Okay. He was captured, taken up to the camp of the Babylonians, and there somebody was brought in before him. Who was it? His own children. And what happened to them? They're all killed. Did he jump up and down and say, oh, oh you missed one, goody, goody, you missed one? Did, he miss, did they miss one? What was his name? Melech. Uh, then what did they do to the king? They blinded him carried him off and changed to Babylon. Did this fulfill two contradictory prophecies? That's real interesting. See, that would test the faith of people living in those days, just like um, somebody in one of my classes wrote me a, or sent me a little pamphlet uh, showing how the church just couldn't be true. Because look at all the prophecies that aren't fulfilled yet. You see? They're all going to be fulfilled. And this is the way we test it, the Lord tests our faith. And those who are weak of faith, they can take a document like that and it'll shake them. When you've been around this kingdom a little while, you, you, everything gets fulfilled, every jot and tittle. Okay, now they broke down the first wall and were ready to attack, and all of a sudden the general stopped everybody, stopped the armies from destroying the city. He had to do something. What was it? He had to send his soldiers in to do something. What'd they do? They had to find Jeremiah. And of course he was in prison, very weak. They rescue anybody else. The eunuch, his life was saved too, that had rescued uh, Jeremiah out of that dry well with those big long rope of rags. Remember that? Yeah, he got saved too. The eunuch. Then he, they, they got him, they went in and they destroyed the city, destroyed that beautiful temple, pulled down all the walls, and all this is going on. They line up all the prisoners, poor bedraggled, some of them wounded. Uh, they really are a motley crowd. And one of the, one of the uh, commanding officers is watching the crowd go by, and who does he suddenly recognize? Jeremiah! What are you doing in bonds? They recaptured him. Stop, stop, stop. He says, stop here. Can't take him back. He offered Jeremiah alternatives. What were they? You can go if you want to, not in bonds, but just go. Or you can stay, which you want to do. So which did he decide to do? 
he stayed. Where did he end up in Egypt? There are rumors in Wales that he eventually was taken to Wales, and there are rumors he was eventually taken somewhere else, somewhere else. Jeremiah is supposed to have been all over the world. But so far as we know, he disappears in Egypt. That's the end of his career. Then we come, uh, by the way, uh, what uh, tribe did Jeremiah belong to? Levi? Any special branch of it? Aaron. Was he a priest then? Yes. Now what about Ezekiel? What tribes he belonged to? What tribe? Kind of quiet. Ezekiel. Which tribe? Dan? Oh, he's Levi too. So he is. Uh, what branch of the tribe of Levi? Aaron. Is he a priest? Yeah, he's a priest. Just want to make sure you knew, you see. All right, both of these men are of Aaron. Both of them are priests, these two great prophets. You'd listen to him, that's right. Oh, not where they were slaves over there in Babylon, you see. That, uh, the, the organizational structure was broken down over there. So God just says, now you go down among the people and tell them I told you thus and so. And then Jeremiah wrote and said, I've had a vision concerning you. You do what Ezekiel says. You see, we've got a little support here. Five years they were there before he was even raised up. And he got, went down and was tongue-tied, of course. He didn't know what to say. The Lord says, go on back home. I've got to start all over with you. You're too bashful. Once they were called as prophets, they, they received the Melchizedek priesthood, having been ordained by God. Joseph Smith said, if they couldn't be otherwise ordained, they were ordained by God himself. As far as priesthood's concerned, after their calling. But he was a priest when he was taken. How old was he when he was taken over to Babylon? 25. And how old was he when he was called? 30, five years later. Okay, good. Now, in 593, after five years, he saw this vision in which it was a great whirlwind. He saw four animals, then he saw a cluster of four wheels. And he got all these wings and eyes and so forth, and they all had significance and meaning, and I suggested to you a possibility. And then he saw the Lord, and he received his calling and was told what to do. And so at first he was tongue-tied, and the Lord had to take him back and have him lie on one side, all tied up and bound, representing the northern tribes, and turn on the other until he had cramps and so forth. It was kind of interesting. It's kind of a teaching device program for him. And the Lord said, now do you kind of get the picture? Now you go out and tell those people. So eventually he was able to do it. He was told that um, <clears throat> the day that the siege began in January of, of 88, 588, Something uh, traumatic would happen in his family. What was it? His wife would die. Did he know in advance? Was he to mourn bitterly? No, he was not. Ezekiel had 12 revelations, and he dated each one of them. Then he devotes chapter 34 to Prince David. Who's Prince David? The latter-day political, spiritual leader of the Jews who will build a new Jerusalem temple a old Jerusalem temple, and prepare the people for the second coming of Christ. Whether he is then at that time fully converted or just a righteous man like Cyrus until such time as the gospel reaches him, we do not know. Uh, Brother McConkie has suggested that in his estimation, when the, when the temple is built, it will be uh, under the direction of the priesthood, but uh, he says that just as uh, supposition, he says. My own feeling would be that while that's possible, all the surrounding circumstances would indicate that we will be separated from them, and they'll have two prophets, Prince David 
apparently carries the people right on through being a righteous man, but the people at large are not taught nor converted prior to the uh, Battle of Armageddon. Now he saw that, uh, that great resurrection of dead men. Their bones all come gathered together, flesh came on the bones, and all of a sudden they stood up. What does this represent? It could represent the resurrection, but the, the scripture itself says it represents the gathering of Israel, the coming alive and the resurrection of Israel, coming back together. Then we have the two sticks. What does each stick represent? Books. And what books are they? The book of uh, what tribe? Judah and the other book, Joseph, Ephraim, they're joined together, and they become as one even as the people are to become as one. Then chapter 38 is the Battle of Armageddon, and I give you a lot of details concerning that, that it will, um, the outer cities will fall, uh, the siege will last three and a half years, there will be two um, members of the priesthood, two Jewish prophets who hold the priesthood, and by the word of their mouth, fire will come forward and block Gog and Magog as they try to take the city. But at the end of three and a half years, they do take the city, take half of it, get clear up to the temple, and then stop to celebrate because they kill both the prophets. They're not allowed to be buried. They lie in the street for three and a half days while Gog and his officers are celebrating with a big feast before they just wipe out the city, having ravished and destroyed about half the people. And at the end of those three and a half days, a voice speaks. Both the prophets are raised from the dead and are caught up. And the 45th section says, then Christ makes his appearance, and we all get to see him together, and a terrible earthquake sweeps through the land. Only one-sixth of the Gentiles are left. That's the big depopulation explosion we've been talking about. And uh, then uh, Joel gives a description. Isn't that interesting how Joel tries to describe it as horses and... Uh, and uh, then all this thunderous noise, and they fly along the tops of the mountains, and then they're like men. They go up, and they go right over walls, and you can't wound them, and, and fire uh, goes out in front of them. It's absolute desolation after they've passed by, and, and they're all in proper order, he says. Real interesting. And it looks like he's describing mechanized warfare. It looks like he actually saw mechanized warfare. Now, chapters 40 and 42 are the building of the temple. And the angel would go through, and uh, each door was measured, each courtyard, each window. Uh, everything is measured. So the Jews had no difficulty deciding how to build the temple. They've even got a temple scroll giving more detail that was found shortly after the War of 67. So they've got a model of their temple, all finished. Two stories. They don't want to do the upper story, but anyway, they're going to build the temple. When they get, and they're now digging along the wall, as I've mentioned to you before, hoping that the ramp that used to exist for Herod's temple it leads up to a different location than where the Dome of the Rock is. In which event they will begin building the temple immediately, they've announced. Yes, it, it's very much. Solomon's and Herod's temple were identical except for minor embellishments. And the one described by Ezekiel, it's the same dimensions, so it'll be largely the same. So they know, they know about their temple and what they must do to build it. Any questions now on Ezekiel? Well, it's, the spot is sacred. The Holy of Holies occupied the place where Isaac was offered as a sacrifice, where um, David subsequently um, uh, built a, uh, killed a lot of um, sacrifices and fire from heaven consumed them. And the Lord said, that's to be the Holy of Holies, you see. So they're trying to find the same spot. But where the Dome of the Rock is, you've got that 
the whole temple square floor and that rock is the only place where that rock rises right up above the floor and it may turn out to be the place so we'll, that'll be kind of interesting to see how that turns out anyway the temple will be built in our day anything further on Ezekiel now I just wanted to mention two or three things about Daniel before we cross over Yeah, we will know. That's right, that it's very close. And by that time, you see, we will have passed through our period of uh, struggle. The United States gets its crisis first. And if our country does not start persecuting the saints, it can remain right into the millennium and help us build a new Jerusalem. But the Western Hemisphere is going to be cut completely off of the Eastern Hemisphere during these last three and a half years, the Doctrine and Covenant says. So we'll... We'll be separated from them, and it'll be too dangerous to cross the seas. We don't know whether it'll be full of fallout or what it will be. That would rather be suggested by Book of Revelations. It'll be extremely dangerous to cross the ocean. Our technology also may have been knocked out. And so we may find ourselves very humbly going back to Jackson County and, and building it up and, and getting it started and getting it ready. Then when it's just about set, there'll be a big conference at uh, Adamondi Amon. And we won't know about it unless you're a general authority. President um, of the church, Brother Lee, whoever it is, will go back and they'll meet with Joseph Fielding Smith and David O. McKay and George Albert Smith and Heber J. Grant and Joseph F. Smith and Lorenzo Snow and Wilford Woodruff and John Taylor and Brigham Young and Joseph Smith. And the keys will be handed right back Till Joseph Smith has them all back again, he will then turn them back over to Peter, James, and John, and they'll go right back to Adam. Adam will turn them over to Christ. And from then on, uh, Christ will be in his temple. Presiding authorities will be constantly walking and talking with him. Uh, they, they, they are able to see him by sight now, but only occasionally. Most of the instructions are by revelation. When they do see him by sight, it's very sacred, and they seldom referred to it lest to be considered counted as boasting. These are tremendously sacred experiences, although the brethren are talking about a little more than they have previously. From then on, he'll be in personal direction of the whole operation of the kingdom rather than the president of the church. I mean, it will be, he will not be operating through agents from then on. There will be a presidency of the Melchizedek priesthood, but the head of the church will be the Savior, and he'll operate that way right up to the time that he, he, he appears in the heavens and everybody gets to see him together, as described in the 88th section. I think it'll be physical. I think it'll be just the way we always do it, by laying on of hands. Well, that's the way it's usually done, conferring back. Well, so far as we know, the, re the whole organization continues, structured just as it is, although it'll be more elaborate than it is now but it will have the same basic structure. Now, Daniel was captured and taken over to, um, uh, in, into bondage and over to Babylon in 606 B.C. The other class said that in one of my lectures, I was going along pretty fast, and I said 603. So if you've got your, in your note 603, change it to 606. And he and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they got taken over there and and they didn't like all the rich food of the king's table, and they ate the pulse or the nice vegetable soup and so forth. And they were real four sharp Jewish boys when it came time for the quiz program. And the king was so impressed by them, he counted them among his wise men. And then the next traumatic experience they had 
was that um, the executioner's knocking at the door and says, get ready, we're coming to, to chop your heads off. That's when he said, what for? And they said, well, because you couldn't remember the king's dream and interpret it. Daniel said, I never heard of the dream. Well, they said, you, you wise men are all going to be killed. Well, he said, give us a little time. So they went in fasting and prayer. Daniel finally received the revelation on what it had been. Told them not to kill anybody, hold it, take him to the king. And, of course, then he announces to the king that he can't, uh, inter he can't do anything about the dream or interpreting it. He had a good sense of drama. Uh, and, of course, the king, what? You mean it's been misrepresented to me? But he said, my God can and does. And I will tell you what you saw, O king, and why you had a nightmare. Terrible image. Head made of gold. It was a huge, monstrous creature. A little ugly, apparently. Chest made of belly of brass. Hips and legs of iron. And the feet and toes of iron and miry clay. I'll tell you, the king is impressed. And then he said, I'll tell you what it means. The head was Babylon. The chest, Medes and the Persians. And the belly of brass, Greece, and the iron hips and legs. Did, uh, did Rome actually become two kingdoms? Did the legs uh, represent what Rome did? What were the two capitals of Rome? Rome and Constantinople, now Istanbul, which means many Muslims, taken over by the Muslims in 1453. Uh, but Constantinople it was its name up until then. And in fact, until very recently, we always call it Constantinople. Now, here's something interesting. Some ancient scribe, he wanted to capitalize on the name of Nebuchadnezzar, so he had the Nebuchadnezzar going insane. Well, Nebuchadnezzar never went insane for a period of years. He never did what the book of Daniel says happened. We have a, a very elaborate history of Nebuchadnezzar. Then the Dead Sea Scrolls were dug up, and we found that on, in two chapters, uh, the ne name Nebuchadnezzar had been used when another name should have been there. Uh, who was the man who went insane? Father of whom? Belshazzar. Yeah, the man who was the, the real king at the time that uh, was overthrown. So that's, that was kind of interesting, get that straightened out. And I think this is the only church book so far that has that correction in it, uh, unless Brother Nibley's put in one of his books. So anyway, there's the reference for it if you ever need it. Now that we had the visions of the four beasts in the great conference at Adam and Amon, what did the four beasts represent, do we think? Do you know what they meant? Well, not these particular ones. Uh, John the Revelator um, saw some terrible beasts. He saw some resurrected beasts, too. They're not the same ones. But he saw them representing a, a series of kingdoms. And this is probably just the Lord's way of representing different, um, just like the, uh, the Babylonians, Medes, Persians, Greeks, and Romans. He, he tells this over and over again. And so this is what it appears to represent. Now, there's some prophecies about our day in the book of Daniel. One about the stone cut out of hands that come and smash this great image of kingdoms, all that remained of it, and that's in process now. How will all these kingdoms be smashed? Will they be assimilated in the gospel, or will they be literally smashed? What's the answer? And when will it happen? What? Yes, they're smashed, but not by us. In other words, we're not, we never become a political force as a church. 
They're absolutely destroyed at the time of Christ's coming. 144,000 high priests go out to quiet the feelings of the people and tell them to stand steady. Everything's under control. You saw the face of Christ. He's in charge of everything. We are his servants. We are the 144,000 spoken of in the scripture. And we have come to give you peace and to tell you to stand steady. Christ is in charge. And they'll reorganize everything under the direction of the priesthood. That's when it's smashed. All right. Uh, then it talks about the king of the north fighting against the king of the south. And some uh, gospel scholars think that's Russia and China. We'll have to wait and see. Then who conquered Babylon? What was the name of the king? Cyrus. And then he became a very good friend with one of the prophets. Which one? Daniel. When Daniel was very old, his advisors almost maneuvered Daniel into getting killed. Was Darius glad? Oh, he felt terrible about it when he saw what had happened. And he, he just despised these men. He saw what a trick it was. Why didn't he just reverse himself? The rule was of a king reversed an edict. He what? Ceased to be king. So he said to Daniel, well, they'll throw you to the lions, but um, your God will take care of you, I'm sure. So here's this old man. He's tossed down among these cats, and they're very, very hungry. What did Darius do all night? Fasted and prayed. Next one, he went in there, and what happened to Daniel? What's happened to the animals? They're just purring and real good. So Daniel came out. Then what did Darius do with their accusers, with his accusers? Throw them to the cats. What happened to the animals? They'd grab them before they even hit the ground. So that was pretty fast. That was, that was over pretty fast. Now let me give you two or three dates. Make sure you remember them. When was Jerusalem destroyed? 587. When was Belshazzar killed and uh, Babylon destroyed? Now you need to know that one. 39. 539. When did Darius send 50, excuse me, when did Cyrus send 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem? 538. See, you're, you're no trouble. It was the very next year. 539, 538. But they didn't finish their temple and dedicate it until 516. Now, I'd be sure to remember those if I were you. 587, 539, 538, and 516. Then the, the Bible ends on what, at what time? At four, about 400 B.C., and you might remember that 50 years earlier, two men had come to try and help the Jews in Jerusalem. First one was Ezra, who compiled the Old Testament. Was he a prophet? What was he? Nehemiah then came to help build up the city and organize them politically. Was he a prophet? What was he? Cupbearer for the king. Over. Now you've been w wonderful scholars, and I appreciate all of you, and uh, I just want you to know uh, how great it's been to, to be with you, and we'll see you Thursday, and I'm sure you'll all do well. 